This morning's reading is from Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 19. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind, and he did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord, Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. He got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me once again this morning? Father, we are grateful for your Holy Spirit. Father, apart from the ministry and the work of your Holy Spirit, the, the task of teaching and preaching would be daunting and demoralizing. Uh, but Father, we rely uh, on your Spirit to apply your Word, to open our eyes to, to see clearly what you are trying to communicate and teach through your Holy Word, which was inspired by your Spirit. Father, you know the needs of your people, and we just pray that this morning you would be administering your word to those needs. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Uh, so we're coming off of spring break, and uh, my wife and I did what a lot of you did. Uh, we traveled. Uh, we, left, we actually ditched our kids, uh, and just the two of us got to take a trip to L.A., to Hollywood, and uh, it was awesome. It was good. We don't, Lynn and I don't get to do that enough and just you know, ditch the kids. So that was good. But as we were making our, our plans, we realized that it had been 11 years since I had been on a plane. The last time I had flown was when we flew from Cleveland to Indianapolis to candidate here at ECC. Now from that, the fact that I haven't flown in 11 years, you could, you could conclude that Dan needs to get out more. 
that Dan is just too cheap to pay for plane tickets, or that Dan just really likes to drive. And it's actually all three of the above. Uh, most of my travel is around, you know, the Midwest or back east, Pennsylvania, New York, to visit family. Uh, but when we do get out and get to go to places like Florida, we drive. Because I'm too cheap to buy five plane tickets. And because I really like driving. I love road trips even when the kids are in the car. Uh, it's just, it's a lot of fun to me. And I've been on some, some epic road trips before. Matter of fact, as we were flying and we're crossing over the Rocky Mountains, I'm, I'm thinking, I would love to drive this. And I begin to plan in my mind, you know, a dream vacation of driving Route 66 from Chicago all the way into Hollywood. And, and I'm talking about this and my wife is looking at me like, you're crazy, you're going alone, I'm flying, I'll meet you there. But, but I love road trips. I don't think I would describe any of my road trips, though, as life-changing. They've been fun, enjoyable, but not life-changing. This trip, this road trip that Saul, soon to be known as Paul, is on, was a life-changing road trip. All right, one commentator that I read this week said that apart from the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the conversion of Paul to Christianity on this Damascus road is the most important event in world history. I think that might be a stretch, but not by much. Uh, consider that in 35 AD, Christianity was viewed as a small, fringe, kind of irrelevant sect within Judaism. Thirty years later, Christianity is undoubtedly a world religion, spreading throughout the Middle East, into Asia, into Africa, even into Europe. Who do we attribute that globalization of Christianity to? Well, of course, ultimately to God. But if you're going to point to a single man, it's Paul. This conversion of Paul on the Damascus Road changed his life changed the world, and actually changed the whole course of human history. So, so what happened on this road to Damascus that changed everything so dramatically? Well, simply, Paul had an encounter with the risen and glorified Jesus Christ, and it changed everything. This morning, I want to kind of pull that apart a little bit and look at four just really shocking, surprising things that happened on this epic road trip. Uh, the first, Paul became a Christian. Uh, that's surprising. Uh, that's unexpected, to say the least. Paul became a Christian because he encountered the resurrected and glorified Jesus. He saw him. He heard him. Now, in the passage that was read, he sees a blinding bright light and hears this voice. But this event is so important that Paul retells it two more times in the book of Acts and refers to it multiple times in his letters. And as you pull, pull into those pieces of the story, what Paul says is, that blinding light, that was Jesus. I saw Jesus. I've seen him. He appeared to me. 
I believe that blinding light was the, the glory, the radiance of the resurrected and glorified Jesus. And as, Paul, as Bob said last week, Paul gets knocked off his high horse by this encounter. He sees him. And th- this is not a convenient truth for Paul. Not at all. Uh, up to this point in Paul's life, Saul's life, he, he's a Pharisee. He's steeped in the Jewish tradition. He's deeply invested in, well, frankly, maintaining the status quo, the traditions of the elders, keeping things as they are. And he's so committed to that cause that he has been vehemently, zealously persecuting the church. The language Luke uses as he describes this portrays Paul as kind of a wild beast, running around and doing damage to a vineyard or something like that. He's snorting out murderous threats. He's just wild-eyed in his determination to squash the church. So encountering the risen Jesus is inconvenient for Paul. He would have been on your top ten list of people who want Jesus still to be dead and in a tomb somewhere. I think that's important because sometimes the, the resurrection encounters that the disciples have are portrayed by skeptics as kind of wish fulfillment. You know, they loved Jesus. They really wanted and, and hoped that Jesus was still alive. And, and those hopes and those wishes just kind of led their imaginations to, to get the better of them. And so they felt like they had encountered Jesus That can't be the case with Paul. He did not want Jesus to be alive, and yet, on this road, he encounters him, and it changes everything. This is just, again, so incredibly unlikely. Imagine this afternoon, you go home and you turn on the news, CNN, Fox News, whatever yours is, and you see this headline, Hillary Clinton has dropped out of the race endorsed Donald Trump and joined his ticket as the vice president candidate. You'd be somewhat surprised, right? That doesn't even hold a candle to the surprise that the disciples would have felt when they heard Paul, Saul, has become a Christian. It's that unlikely. So unlikely is this conversion that some have pointed to it as a great evidence that something divine happened on the road. This wasn't just someone changing their mind. This isn't just a omea culpa. Something divine happened that transformed Paul, caused him to, to rework his theology from the, from the ground up, redefine what God meant, redefine what Messiah would mean. Uh, work his, rework his theology of, of Israel and of end times. It, it, it's all changing now because he's encountered the risen Jesus. The risen Jesus. That's the non-negotiable, the essential truth of Christianity. That Jesus didn't stay in the tomb That death didn't hold Jesus. He was victorious. He didn't just die a a martyr's death. He was raised, vindicated by God, as right 
and righteous, ascended into heaven, accepted by heaven, glorified. That's what Paul experienced on that Damascus road, and it changed him. The second dramatic thing that happens to Paul is he becomes an apostle to the Gentiles. He's taught something about the universal nature of the good news of redemption. And he becomes an apostle, someone who is now sent to the world to proclaim this good news of redemption, that it's for all people, not just the Jews in Israel, it's for all people. Now, if you read through your Bible, Old Testament and the New Testament, there's, there's hints of this all along. Certainly, you could go back to Abraham. And God promises that through Abraham, all the nations would be blessed. Not just his descendants, not just the Israelites, but all nations. You could move on to, to Moses as he leads the people out of Egypt in the Exodus. It's not just the Jews that were in bondage in, in Egypt that leave. Many Egyptians join them and go into the promised land and experience the covenant and those promises. You can move ahead to Jonah, and you see Jonah, through Jonah, that God's compassion extends to outside the, the borders of Israel, to other nations, Assyria. Certainly you see it in Jesus' teaching. Jesus, kind and compassionate towards a Samaritan woman. And many from her village become believers in Jesus. You could see it in Jesus' interactions with the Roman centurion as he heals his daughter. The blessings of the good news of Jesus and redemption aren't just for those in Israel. They're for the nations. But now with Paul, all those things that have been hinted at are, are exploding because in Paul, God has now appointed someone who will be sent to the nations. Uh, the word that is translated in Cornelius' vision as Gentiles, is the word ethnos, nations. Paul's world is being turned upside down, or maybe you should say right side up, by what has happened. All his kind of ethnocentric or nationalistic visions and dreams, they're evaporating in the light of Jesus' glory. In the light of this truth that the gospel is for all the nations. It, as I was thinking about this, actually just this morning, something hit me. Paul's conversion wasn't just for Paul. It was for us. He was sent to us, the nations. That's incredible. But now, think about this. Our conversion isn't just for us. It's for others as well. Paul was called into service to God's grand mission, his grand purpose, and we, as we embrace the gospel and are transformed by it, we're called into that same mission. Now certainly Paul's office as apostle to the Gentiles is utterly unique. We're not apostles called to the Gentiles, but we are part of that church that shares in the mission of extending God's redemptive love 
and grace to the nations. That's cool. Uh, this, this month here at ECC, we're focusing again on the importance to the church, to us, of missions. Because the task isn't done yet. There remains more to do, and we have the privilege of being a part of that. Now, what does that look like, that we carry that mantle of still carrying on, continuing the mission of God to the nations? Well, I think one of the responses to that truth is prayer. We ought to be praying that the gospel would continue, that the gospel would penetrate into deep, dark places where there is no Christian witness. Let me recommend one resource that I use often in praying for missions. It's called the Joshua Project. You can log on, I think it's joshuaproject.net. You could subscribe to their Twitter. There's probably an app. You could download and print a prayer calendar. But it highlights unreached people groups, nations, where there is no viable Christian witness yet. And at least be praying. And watch as you pray how your heart softens and becomes inflamed with this passion for mission. You can pray, you can give. There are tremendous organizations that are doing work in these unreached places. Give to the missions work of ECC. We are doing through the missionaries that we support and the organizations we support. We're trying to do our part. And maybe consider going especially those of you who are younger and maybe still in college, maybe God is calling you to foreign missions, to going to these places that no one has gone before, where there is no Christian witness. But one of the remarkable things about living in Bloomington is going to the nations doesn't even necessitate crossing oceans or getting a visa. It can mean going across the street. It can mean hosting an international student in your home and showing them the love of Christ and sharing with them the love of Christ. The task is not yet done, and we have this privilege of being a part of it, of taking the gospel to the nations. Paul, on this Damascus road, he not only became a Christian, he became an apostle to the nations. And that mantle, that, that baton, gets passed on to generation after generation. Third, and this to me is one of the most beautiful truths in all of Scripture. You see it in this passage. Paul learned how closely Jesus identifies with his people. Not just identifies with them, how closely Jesus is united to his people. Uh, the voice came to Paul Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who was Saul persecuting? Christians, followers of Jesus. But in doing that, he was persecuting Jesus because Jesus is so united, connected to his people, that to do something unto the least of his followers is to do it Unto him. Uh, 
The political philosopher Rousseau recounts a story when a, a French princess was told of the hunger of her people and they said to her, they don't have any bread to eat. And she replied, well then let them eat cake. It just showed how cold and indifferent and uncompassionate and disconnected and out of touch she was with her people. What a stark contrast Jesus is to that. He not only knows and sympathizes with the needs of his people and their pain through persecution and suffering. He says, if they're experiencing it, somehow I am too. And that's mysterious. And it, it, it's, it's beautiful. And it's comforting for me to know that what I go through in my life as a Christian, suffering, whether it's persecution or not, Somehow, because Jesus is united to me and I am united to Jesus, him and me and me and him, he feels it too. And he has empathy and compassion for me. That's just a beautiful truth of Scripture. Uh, this past week, seems like every week we could say this, but this past week we saw just some horrible things unfold in the news. A, a bombing in Pakistan that was targeted towards Christians celebrating Easter in a park. You could, every week, pick out something different, some horrible tragedy, and every tragedy ought to tug at us. We ought to feel compassion for people who were created in the image of God and are suffering. But even more so, when it's our fellow Christians, through our union with Christ, we're bound together in this deep and profound way that words can fail to describe. Christ can say, why are you persecuting me? Heaven grieves, heaven mourns. Uh, the saints cry, how long, O Lord, for justice? Seeing those things ought to move us to compassion, to action, to prayer. Paul learned that day how closely Jesus identifies with his people. And it shaped his entire theology. Paul is famous for a phrase. It's simple, in Christ. You can find it in every one of his letters. In Christ. We, we are in Christ and he is in us. We share in his death. We share in his resurrection. We're seated with him. I wonder how much of that goes back to this experience on the Damascus Road where he heard the voice say, why are you persecuting me? And he understood how intimately connected Jesus is with his followers. The fourth thing, the final thing. On this road, Paul experienced grace in all its humbling and hope giving power. If it weren't for grace, this encounter with the resurrected Jesus would have gone very differently, right? Jesus was an enemy of Jesus at this point. He was trying to squash out Jesus's movement, kill his followers, or at least arrest them. Were it not for grace, this encounter with Jesus would have been wrath and vengeance. But Jesus extends grace. 
And Paul experiences grace in all its humbling and hope-giving power. Think about how humbling this experience must have been to Paul as he realizes that all of his tremendous skills, rhetorical skills, all of his intellect, all of his privilege as a Roman citizen, as a well-educated person of the law, all of those he had been using for evil that he thought was good. He, he was on the wrong side of history, on the wrong side of the Messiah, on the wrong side of heaven itself. How humbling that must have been. And then he realizes those simple fishermen had it right. And God is using them to spread this message of the Messiah, using them to build his church and his kingdom. Paul had to have realized at that moment that I'm being called, but it's by grace, not because of my merit, not because of my skills. I've misused those. He was humbled by grace, but at the same time, given hope. He had misused his gifts, as we all do. Maybe not with the murderous intent of Paul, but we all squander and misuse and misappropriate God's gifts in our lives. But he realized at that moment that there was the possibility of forgiveness. That Jesus was still calling him into fellowship, still calling him into partnership in his mission. He, he realized Jesus isn't holding all this past against me. I'm forgiven. And I'm being used. So despite the fact that grace was humbling, it was hope-giving to Paul. Yeah, that's the makings of a pretty epic road trip. Uh, there's some ways in which Paul's conversion on the Damascus Road, it, it's not a paradigm for how every conversion goes, right? I mean, not every conversion, probably no conversion is that dramatic. And a lot of times people can't point to a moment like Paul did. Paul rehearses this moment over and over again with the people he's writing letters to. This is when I became a Christian. We can't all point to a, that single moment where we crossed the threshold of faith. So in some ways it's not a paradigm for every conversion, but in some ways it is. Paul met Jesus. He didn't just hear truths about Jesus, contemplate doctrines about Jesus. He met him in a very real and personal way. And it changed him. And it changed his world. He was called into service of the Lord now. And he was baptized into the body of Christ, the community of faith. And he received grace. And maybe you came in this morning and you need to experience some of those things. And maybe you've heard truths of Jesus, but you've never met Jesus personally. And maybe you, you have, but you're resisting the call that he's placed on your life. 
Or maybe you're kind of giving the church a stiff arm. Said, I want Jesus, but let's just keep our distance. Maybe you came needing grace. Jesus wants you to experience all of those things. And maybe you can do that this morning. And turn that trip that you had this morning from your home to this church. Maybe it was a half mile, but it could be a life-changing experience, a pretty dramatic road trip. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for how it meets us in just such unexpected ways. There's just no way Paul left on this trip expecting that his life would be changed and that he would be used to change the world in the name of Jesus. But Father, in your grace you met him and you changed him. You forgave him and you determined because of your good purposes to use him to build your kingdom. Father, we pray that we would experience that too. Your grace and your forgiveness. Joy of service in your church and your kingdom. Father, we know that that is possible because you are a risen, a risen Lord who is alive and well and still doing your work and advancing your, your kingdom. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.